I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, January the 28th on CBC Radio. Parliament may have been on pause for the past six weeks, but the political drama has taken no holiday. Our Sunday politics panel is here first to size up what MPs are staring down as they return to Ottawa. After that, we will enter the public radio multiverse when This American Life host Ira Glass joins me to reflect on his audio legacy and the crises facing media today. In Hour 2, the International Court of Justice has ruled Israel must take steps to prevent genocide in Gaza. The CBC's Chris Brown will tell us what difference that is making on the ground. And the war between Israel and Hamas has led to huge protests on streets around the world and here at home. And with last week's ruling on the Emergencies Act used during the convoy protests, we'll look at the laws and limits of protest in Canada and consider how much demonstrations can really achieve. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. The lights in the House and Commons will be turned back on tomorrow morning as MPs return after a six-week break. And they have a lot of business to attend to. From the Federal Commission of Inquiry into Foreign Interference in Canadian Politics, which begins tomorrow, to the response to the ICJ's interim ruling in the case South Africa brought against Israel, and the federal court's ruling here in Canada that the government's use of the Emergencies Act was unreasonable, well, this parliamentary sitting promises to be a lively one. So, as the House of Commons reconvenes on Parliament Hill, we're reconvening our Sunday politics panel. Susan Delacourt is a national political columnist with the Toronto Star, and Matt Gurney is a SiriusXM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack. Hi, you two. Nice to have you both back for our first sitting of 2024. It's too late to say Happy New Year, isn't it? (laughs) I think so. Hello, hello. Um, Susan, let me begin with you because tomorrow you are in Ottawa and that's where MPs will be back. What is top of mind for leaders as they begin this new sitting? I think all of them in their own ways are going to be um, looking at what's going on in the United States. It's it's a big year around the world. I uh, I think you see the Trudeau government sort of um, fixated on that. It was uh, it was one of the topics they devoted their attention to at the cabinet retreat. I, I think for the Liberals also, domestically, it's about trying to get their game together. And that's starting to sound like an old story. Uh, for the Conservatives, it's trying to keep their act together. They've had a pretty good year. Uh, for the NDP, uh, they they were in pretty good spirits at their caucus retreat last week. And I think we're just going to see an ongoing conversation about how long that deal with the Liberals lasts. I mm. think it will last a long time. But uh, th- that, in a nutshell, is, I think, where we're all looking. Matt, as Susan said, look, there's a lot on the go. Um, uh, 
for a lot of politicians. How how would you sort of sum up the mood as the parties enter the House? Because I might suggest that the mood sort of collectively for Canadians is is not super hopeful right now. Oh, I mean, just using my own mood as a gauge. I mean, Pia, you said the very beginning it was January 28th. To me, I thought it was already sometime in like October. Like I'm already tired. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the issue of mood is an interesting one, right? Because a lot of these parties are recently coming off of gatherings of some kind. And I think we all understand that the conservatives feel pretty good right now because uh, the polls are uh, showing them that they have a lot to be excited about. Um I have spoken to a couple of liberals over the last couple of weeks and, well, more than that, but I, I've asked specifically about the mood question and what I'm being told is that the mood is great, that they're coming out of a cabinet retreat, that they've had some caucus meetings, that they're fired up. And I, th- I think that's probably true to an extent because I think some of these guys are real, true political animals. They're fired up for the fight. But I also think some of that's just media management, right? Like when the columnist asks how you're feeling, you tell him you feel amazing. You don't tell him, (laughs) oh, I feel really worried about the polls. So I think some of it's expectations management. But, I mean, we still do have, God help us, like a year, a year and a half to go before we would even be moving theoretically into an election season. The actual vote would be later than that. So there definitely is still time for the liberals to try and uh, turn this around and I guess for their sake, it's probably a good thing mm. that they feel fired up as they begin. Now, Matt Gurney, they might tell you, uh, the, the Prime Minister might tell you he's doing amazing, but he told Susan Delacorte in her sit-down <laughs> with him uh, last week that, that things are are tough, um, that 2024 is going to be a tough year for Canadians. Susan, to me, I read your column and his comments a little bit like he's sort of priming the pump, like preparing us all for for the year. What was your biggest takeaway from your conversation with him? What a reflective mood he was in. He wanted to talk about sort of the larger state of things. I'm not sure that um, what I wrote did justice to how much he talked about uh, the state of journalism now, too. It felt a bit self-indulgent to go on and on, for me to go on and on about that. But I I think uh, this this is a prime minister. Matt and I have talked about, about this. This is a prime minister who is trying to situate himself in among all the larger forces that are going on in the world right now. Uh, all prime ministers get um, seized with foreign affairs. I think this one has always been quite uh, interested in where Canada and he fits on the international stage. And I think he's taking stock of that merely because he's had to do so much reacting to global events over the eight years of his prime ministership. Hmm. Okay, that leads me into um, wanting to talk about um, the International Court of Justice's ruling a couple of days ago on Friday on the war in Gaza, because this um, war, uh, three plus months, plus what's happening at the ICJ has been a challenge, I think a lot of people would say for all governments, but um, for our Prime Minister and the federal government here. This is a case brought against Israel by South Africa, and the ICJ ruled um, some provisional measures that Israel must take state steps to prevent acts of genocide in Gaza. It has to report back to the court in a month's time as well. Um, it did stop short of ordering a ceasefire. Matt, so on Friday, after the ruling came out, the Prime Minister scooted by reporters. He wouldn't answer when he was asked about the ruling. And then the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, put out a statement saying, Canada supports the ICJ, but does not accept the premise of this particular case. I know that Liberal MPs have been free to speak their minds on this issue, but this government has been criticized for having no clear position and that it's having it both ways has been some of the criticism, not having a real position. How would you sum up how the government is trying to balance this? 
I would generally agree with the the paraphrase criticisms uh, you've had there. I think you know to to the point that they've never had a position. No, it's it's not that they've had positions. They just don't tend to last more than a day or two before a new position rolls out here. And I think we talked about this late last year. Like this is a, a particular challenge for the prime minister and and his party. Because the divide line, the fault line on Canadian public opinion goes through the Liberals. The NDP and the Conservatives can both have much more united caucuses on one side or the other on this one. For the Liberals, it's harder. And I think you kind of see the Prime Minister constantly looking for, and, and of course Minister Jolie, constantly looking for a position they can take that is both in line with their values and will not be splitting and dividing their own caucus. And the problem, of course, for the Liberals is that like it, it simply does not exist. So I think... That is the, the the overall problem they have. But I, I think, guys, in a weird way, the, the ICJ ruling um, last week actually suits the prime minister just fine because the ruling itself was kind of half pregnant. Like Israel is being told, you know, don't genocide anyone and report back to us in a month about like you're non-genociding. But in the meantime, continue, right? Like the, the, the court could have issued an order for Israel to cease fire. Israel would have ignored it, but the court could have issued it. And they didn't. And I think almost in a weird way, this is also a half-pregnant ruling that the prime minister might seize on. He can reject the premise of it all he wants, but it's not actually forcing him to do anything. And Susan, you know, to Matt's point about the other parties, um, maybe having an easier time of having solidarity around one position, just to point out that um, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, uh, put out a statement as well on Friday saying Justin Trudeau must respect the ICJ decision and immediately urge the government of Israel to comply with provisional measures. So Susan, what do you think... um, of the government's handling of this issue. As Matt said, look, we've been talking about this and this issue isn't going anywhere, and I shouldn't even call it an issue, but the government's um, handling of all of this. Yeah, I think Matt picked up an important point. I, I was really intrigued by the ICJ decision because it's been so fascinating to watch everyone from Joe Biden to the ICJ <clears throat> to Justin Trudeau trying to find a middle in the Middle East, and it's almost impossible, uh, no matter what happens it is it is so easy to to fall on the wrong side of this one i i was also fascinated by how long it took canada to come out with the bland statement it did i i don't know that the government has any choice except to walk down the middle in this one however unsatisfactory that may be to either side in this one but as matt said i it's not just the Liberal Party and caucus. I think the country itself is divided on this one in important and significant and maybe non-middle ways. And I don't think anybody's going to be satisfied with what the government has to say 100% on this one. But does, be this, 50%. does this dog the Prime Minister and the Liberals in the House? I think it's more an issue. I, I heard that when the leaders, um, minus Pierre Michael Chong sat in on it, do you remember they had a meeting about the Middle East um, a few weeks before Christmas, I believe? And I was told uh, by some of the participants in that meeting that what they, were, they talked about was how tough this was for MPs and politicians in their ridings. That it is, it's what's going on here in the ground in Canada that has made this so tough. And they said they had to, um, they had to work very hard at keeping the peace in their own communities and and keeping people talking. 
And I think, as, as Matt alluded to, they've all been back in their writings now for the last several weeks. And people can see in real terms how this is hitting people on the ground. And I think you're going to see them. I think they're going to try to be careful around it. There was some caution, I thought, before Christmas. And I, I, I think the best way would be cautious Okay. Let's uh, talk about another international um, issue. This is foreign interference. The much-anticipated Federal Commission into Foreign Interference begins its hearings in Ottawa. Um, Matt, you know, there was a lot of sparring and disagreement of what this commission should be focusing on, um, what its scope of it should be. I I mean, I don't know what it's going to uncover, but who at this point going into this thing um, has, has things to gain and who has things to lose? Um, you know, I, I honestly think, and I, I know this will sound like I'm just trying to uh, avoid the question, but I would say, like, Canadians have something to gain. I think we will all benefit from the transparency this will bring. But I suspect every party has dirty laundry on this one. And I, all of all of the time we've been talking about this, I've, I've been very careful about not wanting to suggest that any party is in the bag for some foreign power or that any leader is beholden to uh, foreign assistance. But my gut feeling, and I have talked with members of different parties here, is that all of the major parties, if we really aired out everything here, we would find that there were suspicious donations or there had been shenanigans uh, with nomination writings, things like that. All the parties play pretty hardball, cynical politics with uh, diaspora communities in this country, and I don't think any of them have their hands cleaned. When I see hand-wringing about the exact terms of reference or the scope of the inquiry, Part of me suspects this is about uh, the parties trying to think about what's going to make the other guys look bad while hopefully not making them look bad. This is why I think we need a broad review into this. I want everything dragged out into the daylight here. I don't know if the way to do that is with one huge all-encompassing inquiry or if we should in fact have a series of them focused on individual states that we believe are attempting to influence our politics. But, I mean, as we used to talk about, the three of us used to talk about during the uh, Public Order Emergency Commission hearings, we found out more in those few weeks of testimony about how our government works than we would have in years otherwise. I am 100% in favor of as many inquiries as we can possibly bear. It's the only corrective I can see that'll work against our weird lack of transparency. Susan, I, I want to talk I, about the uh, the Emergencies uh, Act ruling. So I'll give you a brief moment just to, to talk about the foreign interference inquiry, though. Well, I think it, it's, it's, it has changed in, in tone and purpose from when we're back in the David Johnson days, if you remember that. Since then, we've had the Prime Minister announce that uh, he suspected India in the death of a Canadian on Canadian soil, which is interference of a high order. Uh, so I, I think, as Matt says, this thing has, has spiraled outward, and I'm not sure that one inquiry, or, or definitely not just this one week, is going to satisfy it. But I, I do think I've always been in favour of an inquiry, and the reason was that I don't want Canada going down the road that we're seeing in the United States where people will question the legitimacy of elections. Mm. I think that's, um, I think Canadians need to be reassured that 
our system is still functioning. Okay, it's important uh, we talk about the federal court ruling on the Emergencies Act. Um, this, of course, has to do with the convoy protests that paralyzed Ottawa and shut down um, crossing points between Canada and the U.S. Two years ago uh, this month is when that all started. So the federal uh, court's judge has now ruled that the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act was unconstitutional. The federal justice minister, Arif Rani, has said the government will appeal this decision. It's probably going to go up to the Supreme Court. Um I want to ask you each about the politics of this. There's been a lot of talk about the ruling itself, but the politics. Susan, how will this ruling impact both the Liberals and the official opposition, the Conservatives' strategy and messaging in this new sitting, do you think? Because it's such a huge issue. Uh, the politics are incredibly polarizing, and I wrote this last week. It's We now have a choose-your-own-favorite-justice on this one. You can either side with um, Rouleau, or you can side with the, the more recent one. And in actual fact, if you read both rulings, and God help me, I did, um, in detail again last week, they're not that far apart. But the politicians on either side of this are going to be doing their best to turn this into two different rulings. Hmm. Matt, how do you think this is going to play out politically, the ruling and how the various parties might use it politically to their advantage? Yeah, I wrote about this last week, and and what I said at the time was, in terms of the politics of this, the Conservatives are obviously going to run with it, and the the Liberals will take some hits. Um, It's, you know, a federal court judge has ruled that the government violated the rights of Canadians, and at least until we have an appeal, which I uh, know we will have, and I'm looking forward to, because I think we need a final uh, ruling on this issue, this is not great for the Liberals. But I also, as I wrote, I also don't think it's that bad for them. Like, when I say not great, I'm not kind of trying to impress you all with my talent for understatement. I mean it literally. <laughs> like, it's it's not great, but... I think, look, if you're going to have a judge rule against you on an issue, like, I hope I'm lucky enough that the judge rules against me on an issue where, like, the Canadians two to one agree with what I did. The the public opinion on the convoy baked in a long time ago, and it baked in in favor of the Liberals having used the Emergencies Act. So, look, what happened last week, it knocks the Liberals off their comms game a bit. It's obviously going to give some fodder to the Conservatives to attack them. But in terms of public opinion, yeah, like it's not great, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. Hmm. Okay, speaking of things that might have knocked uh, the Liberals off their game a little bit last week, Susan, can we talk a bit about Ken McDonald? This is the Newfoundland MP who made headlines last week uh, for comments he made on the record to a Radio Canada reporter saying he thought it would be a good time for a leadership review for, for the Liberals. And the next morning he puts out the statement walking that back and saying, look, I, I'm not calling for one. What does this episode tell you about what's happening behind the scenes? Well, I think, as many people said, Mr. McDonald was saying the quiet thing out loud. None of us, pardon me, have to go too far to find liberals these days who are saying there's a lot of hatred out there for the prime minister. The the Radcan reporter who did that story also went to Mr. McDonald's riding and talked and found people backing up what he was saying. So, uh, none of that has gone away just because Mr. McDonald has had a change of heart. I do think, though, it's going to be, uh, you're not going to see other Liberals putting that out in the days ahead. Mm. I, don't, I don't think that this has started a steamroller. Is that, because, be the, is that because you suspect or you know that his change of heart came with some pressure from the Prime Minister's office, the PMOs? Like, we don't do that, pal, around here. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely did. Uh, when I was talking to them this week, there was back and forth between the offices um, all day. 
So yes, I think uh, I think that that did happen, and I I think where he crossed the line was in you know he's he's been allowed a lot of indulgence. He disagreed with um, the party before. He actually voted with the Conservatives in a motion against the carbon tax late last year, and no punishment was handed out. But when you start talking about hatred toward the Prime Minister and a leadership review, now you're getting into kind of sketchy territory, and I think. That's what he was told to walk back. Hmm. Matt, where are you? The Liberals, um, you know, poll after poll, not doing well. Um, and some by wide margins, not doing well. As you both have said, there's a long runway to the next election. So how are you seeing um, the Prime Minister's leadership in the Liberal Party right now? Um, secure. And I, I think like what happened with McDonald last week is is proof of that, right? Like I was joking with my colleague Jen Gerson that like, uh, Mr. McDonald got his annual 24 hours of independent thought out of the way early this year, and then he was forced to snap right back into line, right? So I, I agree entirely with Susan that I don't see any threat. I don't think this is going to ripple because I think the PMO was able to just turn Mr. McDonald into a, a, a useful example more than a problem. But I think, you know, overall... Um, I, I honestly believe, and I, I feel like I'm kind of increasingly isolated in this. I think Justin Trudeau's their best chance in the next election. And I don't know if he can win at this point. The polls are are pretty against him here. But I don't think they can replace him with anyone else who will do better. And I think anyone they replace him with would, in fact, likely do worse. And I think probably a lot of liberals know that. The question I have, and it, I, I don't have an answer to it, is six months from now, if the polls haven't improved or if they've even gotten worse, there might eventually start to be a focusing of the minds among the Liberal caucus because, you know, at a certain point, MPs who might have been secure in their jobs a year or two ago are going to be looking at the prospect of unemployment. That might start to change hearts and minds. It gets pretty late to find a new leader at that point, though, doesn't it, Susan? Oh, yeah. I, I, I It may already be too late. Um, I have a minute left. And Susan, I just quickly want to ask you, uh, you know, we haven't talked about many issues that are on Canadians' minds, the housing crisis, um, the cost of living crisis. Is that what's going to dominate this session, despite what we just talked about, all the things we just talked about? It should. It should dominate discussion because that's where Canadians' minds are at. And I wouldn't put, I, I put, keep healthcare in there as well. I think all those problems have not gone away. And uh, I think we're going to hear them being talked about in politics, and we should. Okay, you both, thank you again for joining me for our first sitting of 2024. We'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Susan Delacourt is a national columnist with the Toronto Star in Ottawa. Matt Gurney is a Sirius XM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack. Matt's in Toronto. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. You are listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. Now, from layoffs to lack of trust, news about the media can seem like a steady drip of doom and gloom. Try working in the business. One relative exception over the last decade, though, is the rise of podcasting. It's not immune for market and audience shifts, of course, but it's become a bona fide cultural force and moneymaker with ad revenue in the billions and growing. Well, my next guest rightly gets a great deal of credit for that boom. As a groundbreaking radio host turned podcast impresario, Ira Glass has flipped the script on the media industry's despair. But then again, since his show, This American Life, first launched nearly 30 years ago, Ira's always had a way of doing things differently. Ira Glass is coming to Toronto to share lessons he's learned along the way in a live stage show that's happening next month. Before that, though, he joins me here on The Sunday Magazine. Ira Glass, hello. 
Lovely to be here. Are you comfortable with uh, being described as sort of like a good news story in the world of the dire landscape that is the media landscape? <laughs> I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Who would say no? No, I am a failure. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like our, our show, like we continue to have a big audience and people continue to like it. And it is different from what happens on the news shows, for sure. And podcasting, fair to say, it may not be still in its heyday of a few years ago, but it's still the golden era of podcasting. I don't know if I would say it's a golden era, but there's a lot of podcasts that are going strong. There was an era where it felt like there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of outside money coming into it where people were trying things. And now the money has gone and uh, or a lot of it has gone and the experimentation is a lot smaller. There's still some wonderful shows, though. So you're a hard guy to introduce um, because... Of course, to especially a lot of our public radio listeners, like they feel like they know you and they're very familiar with you and your work. There's also like lots of accolades I could throw at you, and I don't want to boost your ego too much, but you know, the Pulitzer, the Peabody. Um, but I just read one the other day that my producer pulled up. You know this, I didn't. A few years ago, an episode of This American Life became the first broadcast available as a podcast to be added to the U.S. Library of Congress National Recording Registry. And I have to say, I find that pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's like, yes, it's nice when things like that happen. Yes. Yes. It's, it, it's hard to know what to do with the feeling of that. You just sort of be like, okay, that was pretty good. <laughs> like, okay, now what are we going to put in the air this week? So, 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 you know, yes, it's yeah. nice when it happens. It's the same way. Like, honestly, like sometimes I get uh, asked to play cameos of myself on cartoon shows. So, you know, like on The Simpsons and Bob's Burger and you're just a different BoJack Horseman. That That is the same kind of feeling of like, wow, that happened, you know? Except for with this one, centuries from now, when historians look back at what Americans were listening to, it's going to be like Louis Armstrong or Louis Armstrong, uh, Bob Dylan and Ira Glass. That is definitely not going to be what, what happens. <laughs> but that's a really sweet thought. 100%. Those guys had much greater market penetration than than, uh, than our little show. But, but that's nice of you to say. And so as we talk about the little show, um, This American Life, next year... Uh, It'll be 30 years since you first hit the airwaves, which means that 30 years ago now, you're likely dreaming it up, working on it, all those things. Do you remember how you even envisioned it back then? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 at the time I was working for like the big, like, you know, NPR, the American equivalent of the CBC, it was working for the big NPR news shows. And so there was a kind of story that I had, that I liked doing where you would get involved. It was, it was like a, it was like a kind of radio feature story, but, but heavily, heavily in the world of feature where, you would really get involved with the characters, with the people being interviewed, and you would watch something unfold. So there would be a plot to it, and so there would be funny moments and emotional moments. And I just thought, like, you could have a you could have a show which would have those stories. And at the time, I was also producing people like David Sedaris, uh, who had just at that point started publishing his books, um, who told these like funny narrative stories, and you know, I was putting those onto onto the radio as well. And and David would occasionally have a story that was like 20, 25 minutes long. And literally, there was nowhere on the radio in America that I I could put them. Like, they were just simply mm. too long. Like, the longest uh, the longest space you could get on a news show uh, on NPR at the time was like nine minutes. And so, he, so I, I was aware that there was all this material that I had available to me that was good but would be impossible actually to compress or I could compress some of it but it, it was leaving stuff out and and I just thought like you could make a show that would combine these sort of essays and uh and writers that I was liking putting on the air with uh with with a kind of a quick 
journalism uh, and these stories with characters and scenes and funny moments and all of that, and that could be a show. Huh. And and it would be kind of like it would be kind of like the stuff I think a lot of people like best when they listen to public radio in the states and maybe in Canada too. Like are those kind of featurey stories that give you a lot of feelings and and kind of take you somewhere different. And um, you know, like obviously we all tune into you know our shows for the news, but but like the stuff that is not the hard news. And um, I thought, like, well, that could be a show. So your archives are all online. You know that. Um, I don't know when the last time you heard this thing I'm going to play, uh, but I just want to play a, a short clip from your very first show. Hey, Franklin? I'm ready. It's Ira Glass here. Uh, you're the MC on the show, Ira. I am the MC on the oh, show. Oh, yeah. great. Ira? 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 Ira. Well, you know, one great thing about starting a new show is utter anonymity. <laughs> Nobody really knows what to expect from you. This interviewee did not know us from Adam. Do you miss being that sort of unknown public radio reporter? Like, does it, has it changed your access and, and, and ability to get certain things out of people? It definitely messes things up with certain people um, because they feel like they have to perform for the radio. And generally, when I start an interview, especially if it's somebody who we heard about something going on in their life and we want to meet it, you know, we want to interview with them. And if they've heard of the show and heard me on the air, and if they're in another city sitting in a studio already, it's kind of a weird, artificial, nervous making environment. And then I get on the thing with them and then I sound over the headphones just like I sound on the radio. So then from their point of view, suddenly it's like they're talking to the radio, but now the radio is talking back to them. It's just a really (laughs) weird experience for them. And I always make it a point to tell some story, say something personal about myself. Like I just, like, like early on, either before the interview or in the interview. So I seem more like a person and less like, um, like a, you know, like a figure from the radio. I will say that this only applies to like half this, the interviews I do, like, like, you know, I just still do a tremendous amount of, of stuff where like, I'm just talking to people who have no idea what our radio show is or who I am. And, and then in those cases, obviously it's, it's much easier. Yeah, they're the best, right? When they just are like, who, who's this MC? I, Ira, is it? Ira Glass? Call me great. I'll tell you all my secrets and stories. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is, yeah. Um, so in that segment we played, you were looking for a little advice on and how to have a long-running show. We're, we'll come back to maybe some advice you want to tell people about that a little bit later. But let's just um, talk about the present. And you're, you're heading to Toronto next month uh, for a show that is called Seven Things I've Learned. So I could ask you to list the seven things, but I won't. Um, but are you sharing like sort of hard-earned wisdom and advice? In one or two of them, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, like, there's one or two of them. Like, like, I really do talk about like how I figured out like how to tell a story. That actually took me a really long time, and it was hard-fought knowledge. And, um, and the nice thing about doing it on stage is that I can play examples, audio and video, and and it can be funny and like that. So I do that. And then after that, honestly, like, there's a bunch of stuff that I sort of have a grab bag of stuff that I'll like go on the road with and then I just kind of pick that morning like oh which ones do I want to do today and which order would seem fun and then and then I'll be rotating stuff in like there's a thing that we just put on the air a week or two ago that I think will be really nice to play for a crowd and so so and so it's really like a, a series of stories just that seem like it would be fun to say in front of people because they're especially <laughs> funny or especially emotional or especially like great stories and then the title seven things I've learned really is just a um a pretend grab bag that I can mm-hmm. put them in. A conceit. A conceit. 
Yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'm, it's not exactly a MacGuffin, but it's like a MacGuffin. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, as you go around uh, sharing clips from your favorite shows and talking about what makes a great story, um, something I think so many Canadians loved was a story you had last year where you went to Alberta um, to explore the reputation of that province as rat-free. I'm going to play a bit of this. This is you with rat inspector Jory Hoffman. It's exciting when you find some. Get a sense of just how monotonous Jory's job usually is when he talks about the last big infestation he cleaned out. It was especially memorable because instead of using poison, which is the normal way to handle it, the landowner is the one who discovered the rats. And he told Jory, why don't you come out and bring a shotgun? Yeah, and they just go running out of the holes and you get time to shoot them and then reload. It was a ton of fun. Four good friends and four shotguns. And just, yeah, that was, that was a great day. Okay, Ira, this sounds like, like, I, Rat Inspector alone makes someone such a compelling person and character. But why travel to Rat Free Alberta? Like, why did that strike you as a great story for a program called This American Life? Oh, the, the American part of the title, we just, we go anywhere we want. We just like, oh. <laughs> this life. It, just this seemed, it, life. it seemed like a good idea for a, a title of a show until we decided that we were successful enough to market the show overseas. And that it's just been a real, pro- it honestly has been a real problem. It's the reason we're not on the BBC. I'm sure of it. It's like we've never been able to get on. So anyway, so, but, but uh, that marketing mistake aside, um, yeah, we'll just go wherever there's a, a, a story. And then we were doing an episode about rats uh, inspired partly by the war on rats declared by New York's mayor, a deeply ineffective and doomed effort from the start that, um, that it seemed like he, the mayor of New York was, you know, he declared a war on rats because people like it when he t- talks about that, but it doesn't seem like it's going to do much. And, and, and we just thought like, oh, let's do a show about rats. And in fact, at some point, one of our producers was like, you know, we're not really hearing the point of view of the rats. And so we got rat co-hosts. We got these comedians to play <laughs> rats and we sped up their voices so they would co-host with me. And then we heard about this story. And I think it's gotten a lot of coverage, you know, in, in Canada. But I think every American I would talk to about this, everybody was, was shocked to know that there's a province in Canada that's basically the size of France that has no rats and uh, and and to hear the story about it and then honestly like one of the things that I was very curious about was did did Albertans have pride about it like was it Mm. like a thing that they teach in schools and one of my favorite parts of the story is we went we went to a place where a lot of Albertans were and um and so we went we basically went in front of the zoo and people are streaming in and out on a Sunday afternoon, and we're just like, name the things about your province that you think are really distinctive and you're proud of. And like, almost no one mentioned the rat-free mm-hmm. nobody. Like, they don't even think about it because mm-hmm. they don't have rats. Like, mm-hmm. literally, just one of them said, like, well, we don't have kangaroos either, but I'm not proud of that. <laughs> and I was just like, it's, like it, it's a real achievement, you know? Yeah. Well, Alberta's trying to get um, people to move to that province. There's a campaign on by its government. In that their advertising campaign, they do not say. You know, come to us. We got no rats. They talk about many other things that Alberta has going for them. So. I know, and I wonder if they market tested that. I have to say, like, Calgary was, I, as somebody who lives in New York City, I found it to be stunningly diverse. And so that campaign has worked. They have really gotten yeah. a lot of people to move there. It was really a nice yeah. place to visit. It's a really multicultural city. Our prairies get a bad rap for being, like, just, like, traditional and white. They're not that way. They're, they're, they're changing. They're changing, just like much of the rest of our country is. Yeah. Um, so, as you said, look, Canadians know this story about the rats in Alberta, and there isn't a reporter in Alberta that has ever worked there that hasn't done a story about it not having rats. But you walk in, and I, I'm trying to get it, like, 
and I know you hate this question. I'm sure you do. But what is it about you, Ira Glass? Like, what do you? What, you're able to get things out of people, bring a different complexion to the stories, not just in the storytelling, but how you ask questions. Like, what is it about you? I mean, I'm out for my own fun. I don't know a better way to say it. Like, even in that clip you were playing with Jury, like, at some point, Jury just got really excited talking about shooting all these rats. And it was really fun to hear him do it. And I don't know. I thought it was, like, there there were certain just things about the story that were fun for me personally to think about. And, um, you know, including, you know, including figuring out if Albertans actually were proud of this you know mm. like i just i just came in with my own agenda and then you know like the key to any interview the key to getting people to open up is like you just have to actually be interested <laughs> like it sounds yeah. so dumb to say <laughs> but if you actually just really want to understand them and what their experience is or something like most people open up like it's just a human like like you know if you think about like during the day how many people actually give a damn about what you're saying and so to show up as somebody who actually I'm actually want to know, like I have a lot of questions. I, yeah. I'm really curious, and you say stuff, and it's funny to me or interesting. Like I feel like that that's that's a lot. It's of cool. It. It's I mean that's it's so I basic. This is I'm, I feel like I'm saying the most basic thing a person could say, but I really don't have anything special beyond that. Yeah. Um. So you're not just like a a, a host anymore, but you you run a business. Um. American this American life has been successful. It's turbulent times in the media business um is is the business side of things with all these podcasts that something you like i love it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i like really love it? i i love running the business i always have um how do we talk program directors into picking us up on the air was our early goal like what do we say to them what do we do you know and and we would come up with creative things to do it was just like a fun project that seemed easier than writing or editing or reporting where where you really don't know how it's going to work out. And so the way we got onto stations is we knew they didn't need another show. Lots of people were getting were trying to sell them shows, but we knew they really needed interesting ways to raise money from their own listeners in pledge drives, which is the thing we have here in the states which which you are lucky you don't have up there in Canada. Um, the, the you know the, the the United States Congress doesn't give much money to public radio or public TV here in the states, and so all of the public radio stations have to go on the air and basically beg listeners to send them money. Yeah, and um, and they it's just a terrible, unpleasant job. And what we really realized early on was that that's what the program directors really wanted that nobody gave them was really funny compelling, successful pledge modules that would make people light up the phones. And I feel like, well, I'm a, I'm a radio producer. I, I can make anything. You know, give me an assignment. I can do it. I'll do the best one you ever heard. And like, uh, and I was like, if you pledge drive, no problem. And then we would make these little three and four minute pledge drive segments where we would, you know, stop people outside of a Starbucks and ask them how much they spent on their coffee. And did they listen to public radio? And how many hours did they listen to public radio? How much had they paid for the coffee? How much were they sending into the public radio? And literally, like, I remember one guy just literally, like, broke into sweat. You could see beads of sweat as he felt, like, so guilty that he was, like, spending $4 on coffee. And then he was listening to public radio for six hours a day, sending us nothing. And we would just do these funny little spots. And people would would send in a lot of money when they heard him. And we told stations, like you can't get these spots unless you pick up the show. And in our first <laughs> in our first year, half the stations that we got picked us up because of the pledge spots. They told us, we just want the pledge spots. We'll take the show too if we have to. 
And um, that's that was, and we just thought like, well, that's a really fun business problem to try to solve. To think through like, what does the program director want? Because he doesn't want a new show. That's just a pain in the ass. It's interesting listening to you talk about um, sort of the business, the business problems, and public broadcasting. Because I think both internally and externally, and I know we're funded differently um, than in the states, but you know, it, those two things sometimes are seen as like ooh attention that people don't want to talk about, or it's sort of mm-hmm. gauche to talk about the business of public broadcasting. And I bring it up because the media landscape is in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, the toilet? I don't know where it is, but it ain't good. Mm -hmm. And I'm just Mm -hmm. wondering what your thoughts are on that because there's people like, you know, we're all trying to figure out the future. Um, And so how are you thinking about public broadcasting and the future of radio? Like, we don't even really call it radio around here anymore. We call it audio. Um, I still say I'm a radio host because I go on the radio, but how are you thinking about the future of the media? I mean, I feel very lucky that I'm not starting a show. It's so much harder now. You know, like, 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 you know, I feel lucky that we have an audience and they're listening already and we don't have to, like, it's so much harder, you know, for any radio show or podcast to get audience. And then the thing that was the reason to exist, I think, for public radio around the United States anyway, I don't I don't, I don't know how the, true this is in Canada, was that we were going into little towns that didn't have a great newspaper. And so, you know, you know, just when I was growing up, like, basically, if you were, like, a smart person living in Iowa... You know, you you couldn't get the New York Times delivered and the TV news wasn't good. And so, like, you would listen to public radio because basically it would be the information that, that you weren't getting at a, with a level of depth that you couldn't get from local media. And now that function of public radio is basically, you know, gone. You know, by the time people hear the news on our shows, you know, like, you know, anybody interested is like already checked it out on their phone, right? Like, they already mm. gone to the news sites they like, whatever they are. And so, and so... From a mission point of view, just just finding a space where you can be saying something different and providing a service is is harder. I mean, the CBC has such a different place in Canadian life than NPR does in American life. Like, the, I know the CBC is always historically was just like one of the most treasured Canadian cultural institutions, whereas public radio in the states really didn't exist until the 1970s and and really in its early years were just were just a bunch of college stations that had no money that sort of banded together and so it, so it's a very different history in the two countries and and the way i see it now is like is like like clearly you know people want to find the news and people also want all the other things that come with the kinds of services that you have there and we have here. They want to hear, like, what's a book that I don't know about yet or an author I don't know about yet who's going to be amazing, who's going to be my next favorite person? What's music I might like that I don't Mm. like yet? You know, like, all of those things, there's still going to be a market for them. You know, but the the question is, like, you know, how how do you organize, you know, how do you organize the revenue so it can still work? It's been interesting to watch the New York Times, which was going bankrupt a few years, basically turn itself into a kind of subscription model where, you know, they basically try to give us out a certain amount of free content so as to hook people into their system and then, they, you know, then the, the people subscribe. And that's where mm-hmm. basically with the ad base gone, they have to do that. Yeah. I will just say um, public broadcasting isn't, uh, you know, it's up for grabs here in Canada too, right? Like there's a lot of debate about whether this CBC should exist and to what extent should exist and how it should be funded. And I, and, and again, I, I bring this up because I think this is a challenge for all kinds of media organizations and the polarization that we see in your country and ours. And I know you said, like, let's just, uh, this American life, not always about the United States, but to that point, you're in an election year, you have a very polarized um, 
citizenry in your country. And so I'm just wondering what's on your mind in this election cycle and seeing your country being quite divided. I mean, I wish I had like a really smart answer to this question. I mean, we're figuring out how to cover it. It's a, you know, it, you know, it's 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 an election that everyone in the United States and probably around the world feels like they well, we went through this exact election four years ago. Do we have to sit through this one again? You know, the thing that's hard right now is to be part of the fact-based medium mm-hmm. and to feel like people really don't care about the facts. Like, that's something that's different than when I started making the show 30 years ago, where it really felt like presenting the facts meant something. Whereas now, in our country and yours and all over the world, like, the most common thing is that the facts come out and basically people who don't agree with the facts just troll the facts until yeah. they don't matter. And There are facts, by the way. That's what I always say. Facts are facts. They're not up for dispute. And yet, we like to dispute and debate facts these days. <laughs> yeah. And then also, you know, like, yeah, so, so, so that, that, you know, I mean, that's something that, that I think about a lot. I mean, one thing that, that is good for a show with our format is that many people we found in the last election simply know us as a podcast and don't know our affiliation with public radio, which is good for us because with Republicans who would be, who would be suspicious of like a CNN reporter. Like they yeah. know what CNN is. They know they don't like it. Whereas if, our, you know, one of our producers, Zoe Chase, who spends a lot of time with Republicans, you know, she goes up and she says, I work for a show called This American Life. It sounds like the most like red, white, and blue yeah. <laughs> like already. Yeah. We're halfway there. And then, and then, and, 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 uh, and then, you know, and just say, well, we're on the radio and we're like a podcast, which is the truth. And I feel like we do end up able to get access to people sometimes who might be less willing to, um, to speak to, the Washington Post or CNN, and then and then and then the 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 flips the the other side of it too is that I feel like we have listeners who don't identify us as being part of public radio or the liberal media in the same way, just because like podcasting operates in this weird gray territory where basically we just come up as you know in a long list of possible shows they can listen mm-hmm. to on a feed, and so there are certain listeners. I mean, I remember. I remember when um, when when President Trump was elected in 2016, Zoe Chase, um, she went to a, an event uh, at the inauguration called the Deplora Ball, which was all the all the <laughs> people who were online who sort of tro- helped troll Donald Trump into the presidency, and uh, and who very much like gave themselves credit for like making him president by trolling trolling the libs online, and. Um, and lots of people came up to her at that at that event and and said like oh I love your show you know what I mean like like yeah. it, like it, it existed in a kind of like uh, neutral territory like a bicyclist in the middle of Manhattan traffic you know where like you know you can still get hit by a truck but you can also kind of dodge between some of the things that cars can't. <laughs> so seven things I've learned. Um, not an advice column, not a commencement address, just seven things Ira Glass wants to share with the world on any given night. So, you know, you talked about, I don't know, I'm glad I'm not starting a show now, but what would you tell someone who, like, it's just like, I love telling stories and I want to go out and tell a great story? I say, welcome aboard. I say, I say, I say, um, that's a great choice. Um, we're in a war. We're in a war between facts and lies. And we need more soldiers on our side. And it's great to have you. And it's really important. And things aren't going great. Like, people don't trust us. The last president called us enemies of the state. And it's really going 
not great. And we need new ideas and we need new people and and it's a calling and and welcome to the foxhole with the rest of us. Mm-hmm. I can grab that completely. Come into the foxhole. Yeah. Come join us. Yeah. Um, it's always great to hear uh, from you and, you know, continued success. Thanks so much for having me here. Ira Glass is the host and executive producer of This American Life. He's going to be in Toronto on February 10th for a live stage show, which is called Seven Things I've Learned. This is the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you can stream and share all the stories we bring you by going to cbc.ca slash sunday. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. A proposal for a two-month ceasefire in Gaza in exchange for hostages being held by Hamas may be in the offing in the coming days. Negotiators from the United States, Israel, Egypt and Qatar are meeting in Paris to discuss the proposal. At the same time, the United Nations is calling on several Western countries, including Canada, to restore funding to the Palestinian Relief Agency. It says without it, the already dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza is bound to get worse. The cut to funding to UNRWA comes after Israel accused a dozen of its employees of being involved in the October 7th attacks. And all of this is taking place just two days after the UN's highest court said Israel must take steps to prevent genocide in Gaza. But it did stop short of ordering a ceasefire in a case brought forward by South Africa. CBC foreign correspondent Chris Brown is in Jerusalem. Chris, hi. Hello, hi. Let's start with this UNRWA ruling. Several countries, the US, UK, Canada, among others, are pausing what amounts to tens of million dollars they give to the UN body responsible for providing help to Palestinian. As I mentioned, um, this comes after Israel uh, made these allegations against um, about a dozen or so UNRWA employees saying they were involved in the October 7th um, attacks. Very serious allegations. There's an investigation by the UN now, Chris. But what more do we know at this point? Well, we don't we don't really know the details of what these uh, 12 are accused of. Uh, the UN has said they're not going to tell us until their investigation is done. But of course, there's lots swirling around here in Israel that's been printed in the uh, local newspapers, reported on television, and passed around on social media. And we also, when I was here uh, after the attacks in October, we also heard some of the uh, allegations then. And and some of the allegations, uh, we know, for example, that one of the hostages who was returned, she came back and said that she was kept in the house of, uh, of a UN employee. We know there have been allegations made about employees of, or at least one employee, a teacher at 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 an UNRWA school uh, in Gaza. The allegation was that this person um, 
stored munitions for the uh, for the attack on October 7th. We've also heard that different uh, vehicles of the UN agency were used uh, as, as part of the October 7th attack. So these are, these again, I can't confirm these, but these have been pretty uh, often repeated, let's say, here. And a lot of Israelis have come to believe uh, that they're true. You know, this is a, a really uh, intense issue for both sides and uh, it's probably not a surprise, uh, frankly, uh, Pia, that it has come out right now. I don't b- really believe in coincidences like this when it comes to the, the ruling by the UN court. And then on the same day, uh, there was this, uh, this announcement about the, about the 12 staffers. Uh, Israel has been opposed to this UN agency frankly, ever since 1948, uh, when it was created, the Palestinians attach a great deal of symbolic importance to its mission. And it's been something that has been uh, fiercely contested Mm. back and forth. You know, um, a lot of Israelis accuse UNRWA of being in cahoots uh, even before October 7th with, with Hamas. Don't forget they run uh, schools and hospitals and these very same schools and hospitals are accused by Israel of, of having tunnels underneath them and how could the staff not know about the tunnels and so forth. Um, and they also accuse the curriculum of, 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 of teaching uh, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic teachings and so forth. Mm. So uh, this is a very, very big deal here. We were in Tel Aviv yesterday uh, and I can tell you this is all that the people were really talking about. And so, Chris, um, you know, in, in better times when you have been in Gaza and when I've been there, it, it, you see people who work for UNRWA everywhere. Like there are thousands of people. And one of the criticisms um, coming from UNRWA and others this morning is that, you know, a dozen or so employees are accused of this. Don't paint the whole organization this way. The people of Gaza need food and shelter and aid, and we help do that. So I'm wondering, with the suspension of funds, how worrying is it for people that the desperate help that Palestinians need right now, that food, water, that aid distribution, is going to be stymied? I think there's a lot of worry. I mean, right now there are roughly 1.7 million people in Gaza who are crowded into the southern part of that territory. They're out of their homes and they are entirely reliant on tents, on food, on supplies that are all delivered, all administered, all brought across the border under the auspices of of UNRWA. So it is a it is a very huge deal uh, that this uh, that this gets sorted. What what we were in Ramallah just uh, just now, and I can tell you the the argument that you hear over and over again is that well, if you've got a school in somewhere, let's say in Canada, and you've got a a couple of teachers that that do something awful, whether it's a murder or whatever, you don't cut the funding for the entire school. This is this is the way. That the that this is being perceived, I should say, in in a lot of Palestinian areas, they see a double standard. They also see that during the Israeli attacks on Gaza, some 152, 154 workers with UNRWA were killed, uh, ostensibly by Israeli attacks, Israeli bombs, and and there was silence from the world. So this is the way this is going over. And and I don't have to tell you, you know how important this agency is because it, it really goes to, for a lot of Palestinians, this there's a very important symbolic value with this. I mean, in 1948, UNRWA was set up to help accommodate all of the Palestinian refugees who left their homes, forced out, left, 
uh, with the creation of the state of Israel. And since then, of course, they've had families, multiple generations, and a lot of Palestinians fear that what really is at play here is Israel's trying to get rid of UNRWA and thereby you know, get rid of them as well and their right to return. So there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, Chris, and this is going to complicate these negotiations that I mentioned um, happening in Paris. This is the United States and, and Israel. Uh, Qatar is there, of course, kind of the voice for Hamas at the negotiations, Egypt. Um do we have a sense? Well, first of all, can you lay out, we don't know exactly what's in this proposal, or even if it will come to fruition, but what's the discussion about? There's a bunch of discussions going on right now. Um, if you believe what has been leaked, and you have to think these leaks are deliberate on the part of the American officials, in part to put pressure on both sides, but probably to put pressure on Israel. One appears to be uh, a pause in the fighting uh, for up to two months. The other seems to be an exchange of hostages, detainees. Right now, Israel has roughly 6,200 Palestinians uh, in custody in jails. Many of them are from the West Bank, but some of them are also from Gaza, and some of them include uh, some of the people who took part in October 7th. And then there's a whole other layer of, uh, of discussions going on, we understand, involving some of the Arab states as well, about the day after, what happens, will Saudi Arabia recognize Israel, and so forth. So, you know, it, it's a bit unclear how much that longer-term package is being discussed right now, but, but clearly the imminent focus is on the 100 or so hostages in Gaza still, getting them back, how long is it going to take, how long is the, uh, is the uh, war going to be paused for. Okay, so we'll see how that plays out over the for the coming days and weeks if, if, if a deal is made. But Chris, of course, it's all buttressed against what you talked about. Um, and this is the ICJ ruling on Friday. This is, of course, for people who might not be familiar with it, a case that South Africa has brought against Israel at what's known as the world's court, a, a UN, the UN's highest court. The court ruling has not called for a ceasefire, which is something that South Africa asked for, um, but did say to Israel, ruled, Israel must do everything in its power to prevent a genocide in its war with Hamas. Israel has to report back to this court in one month's time. Um, we've heard the reaction of Israeli and Palestinian leaders over the last couple of days, Chris, but I'm wondering if, if this, as this sort of sort of settles in, what is the leadership in Israel saying? Because as you said at the very beginning, all these things are kind of tied together, all these issues that we hive off and talk about one by one, they are all very intricately tied. So we've had a, a couple of announcements. I, I thought it was interesting in his uh, pre, what appeared to me to be a pre-recorded statement. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, did not explicitly say they would follow uh, the the court orders, the roughly six or so court orders that were imposed on Israel. Things like improving the humanitarian aid. Uh, no more uh, genocidal statements from cabinet ministers and so forth, and a monitoring system, which is, I think, seen by many here is crucial, a sense that Israel is now, uh, the government there is now uh, being watched for its actions. But today, the IDF, the, the military, said that it was going to, for its part, uh, prevent some Israeli protesters who had been blocking aid from coming in in the southern part of Gaza at a truck crossing called Karim Shalom for the last number of days, maybe 40, 50 or so uh, protesters, some quite hard right-wing protesters, settlers, just were trying to stop 
uh, aid from going into uh, from to, to Gaza to try to put pressure on Hamas. Well, it looks like today the IDF has cleared out those protesters and the aid is now flowing again. So I guess if you're looking for for one sort of immediate takeaway from it, uh, that could be one. Hmm. Let me ask you, as you said, you're back in Jerusalem, but you know, earlier today you were in the occupied West Bank in Ramallah. Um, there have been a number of killings of Palestinians in, in uh, the West Bank since October 7th. I think the United Nations says it's more than 350 Palestinians. It's been a tense and a hotbed and the ICG ruling, the, the unrest stuff. Chris, what, what's it like in the West Bank right now? Because, of course, this is home to millions of Palestinians. It is. Um, it is. Uh, well, I, well, let me give you one very clear example. It's very difficult to move around in the West Bank. Uh, the, the border crossings, particularly at Kalandia, just going in, that's one of the main ones that you cross from, from East Jerusalem to get to Ramallah. It took us over three hours wow. to do a trip that would normally have taken 45 minutes. So this is a an immense frustration. Uh, a lot of Palestinians blame Israel just for deliberately clogging up these crucial arteries uh, that you know trade goes back and forth and it's it's had a massive impact in terms of you know jobs and 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 all of that so there's a huge economic um a piece to this. People aren't working uh, the tax money that uh, Israel has supposed to pay to the Palestinian Authority, who in turn are supposed to pay all their workers. That money's not coming through. There's uh, over 100,000 work permits for people in the uh, occupied territories who come into Israel and work. Those have all been cancelled as well. So you have a you have two things going on. One, yes, is the direct violence that's happening, but two is just this horrible economic situation uh, that is creating a real pressure cooker situation. And we hear that over and over again uh, from, from, from people that we talk to. Now, I know the Israeli government is uh, concerned perhaps for the Palestinians, but also more for their own economy, because a lot of these Palestinians did very important jobs in Israel. And it does seem like there might be some kind of movement on on the work permit situation, uh, but it is all going very, very slow. And I can tell you it's hugely frustrating uh, to be stuck in traffic jams and not be able to move hmm. uh, around the area. Chris, I want to ask you about, because you've, you've been in Jerusalem and into other parts of Israel over the last, um, you know, number of weeks as you've, you've come in and out uh, um, of that part of the world. Um, Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said, look, this war is continuing on. He is committed, as he says, to destroying Hamas. That's up for interpretation what that might look like. But here's the question. There is strong support for the war in Gaza itself within Israel, yet little support for Prime Minister Netanyahu. Can you square those two things for me as you, as you sort of talk to Israelis? We were out in Tel Aviv last night, and there were a number of different protests. And it was quite interesting to look at the size of them. There was one uh, that was uh, directly an anti-Netanyahu protest. We want elections now. Uh, you're corrupt. Get out. And that was a very loud, very noisy protest, but but not especially large. Certainly not anywhere near as large as the judicial reform protest that we saw uh, in the spring. And then there was another protest for families of the hostages who just want the war over uh, and the whole focus of the government, everything should be on 
the hostages and getting them back. And then there was a third, much, much smaller protest, which were just people who want the war to end, period. So, I, I mean, you get an idea of sort of, you know, a, a small barometer, if you will, of, of public opinion. I mean, Netanyahu is very unpopular with many people on the left and in the center, but he still holds commanding support from his coalition members and particularly the, the Likud party has not broken uh, and it has also got the support of these um, far right-wing parties as well who hold about 14 of the 64 seats. And a lot of them have said very publicly, no war, no coalition. And so this is the dynamic and this is what people are, are, are frustrated and pushing back against. Uh, they don't like this coalition. They want elections, uh, but really they don't have any way of forcing them as long as the uh, as the coalition sticks. And uh, we've not really seen too many examples in spite of the crowds, in spite of the hostage families, in spite of the pressure building. We've not seen many examples of, of this uh, coalition fraying. Chris, just before I go, let you go, and just very, very briefly, as I said, you've been in and out of this region over the last three and a half months. And I know when you and our other correspondents were first there and I asked them about the mood, it was obviously shock and sadness and anger. But as you travel around to the occupied West Bank in Israel, in Jerusalem, how would you sort of say people are, are feeling at this point? It's It's been more than 100 days. It has. I think there's definitely been a shift in terms of the desire to get these uh, 100, 105 hostages back. That was one of my takeaways uh, since we've been here. Um, you know, no one really seems to know what victory looks like. I asked a lot of people that last night, and, you know, there doesn't seem to be a victory that they can see in their head except for getting the hostages out. And so I would say that is still uh, very front and center. You ask them about the future, two-state solution, all of this, and, you know, it, it just seems very, very far down on the hmm. horizon. Uh, this is a, a country that experienced a, a, a terrible shock uh, on October 7th. That shock is wearing off, and I think that's, you know, that's the phase that we're in now, and that's why you're starting to see more protests coming back in the streets while you're starting to see more pressure on Netanyahu. And and I would I would guess that that's that pressure is only going to build. And it, it partially explains why these talks are going on in Paris now, um, because it has become very important for people here to get those 100 people back. Chris Brown, thank you as always for your analysis and your smarts. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Chris Brown is a CBC foreign correspondent. We reached him in Jerusalem. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine on CBC Radio, Sirius XM, and on the CBC Listen app. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. So you heard Chris and I talking about the International Court of Justice's uh, ruling on Friday. It sparked protests around the world this weekend, and they're just the latest in the wave of demonstrations that have become a constant since the war of the Israel-Hamas war began more than three months ago. And there have been tensions at some protests. There have been questions about where people's rights to protest are and what boundaries of protesting are in our country. In some ways, those questions echo ones that were asked about the convoy protests that began two years ago. Last Tuesday, the federal court ruled the federal government was, quote, unreasonable and not justified in invoking the Emergencies Act back then. Richard Moon is a law professor at the University of Windsor who specializes in freedom of expression. Richard, good morning to you. Uh, good morning. 
This ruling was about whether the federal government had the legal right to use the Emergencies Act. But did it, Richard, say anything about Canadians' rights to protest or to demonstrate or to occupy? Because I think you'd probably argue legally there's a difference between those three things. Yeah, so the judgment did. The Emergency Act, of course, um, if invoked, gives the federal government the power to take action that might ordinarily fall within provincial jurisdiction. It does not give the federal government the power to override charter rights. And so near the end of the, uh, of the federal court decision, Mr. Justice Mosley's decision, uh, he considered whether or not some of the regulations enacted by the federal government, uh, established by the federal government under uh, the act, whether or not they breached charter rights. So he considered first whether or not Section 2C of the charter, which protects the right to uh, peaceful assembly, whether or not that had been breached, and he decided that it had not. On the other hand, he considered the regulations that prohibited individuals from um, going to certain locations where protests were occurring, like Parliament Hill, that that, in fact, could be viewed or should be viewed as a restriction on freedom of expression, Section 2B of the Charter, that could not be justified. In his view, uh, this restriction was overly broad because it was going to apply to individuals who might be engaging in perfectly peaceful protest, just simply carrying signs or something along those lines. Now, with that said, I think there's a kind of tension between these two determinations, the one that protest could be shut down and that it was not a, uh, a peaceful assembly falling within the protection of Section 2C. On the other hand, individuals who should have the right to attend this protest with signs and so forth. After all, individuals, you know, carrying signs and going to Parliament Hill were going to be participating in a larger protest, aspects or elements of which uh, were not, in the judge's view, um, peaceful in character. Okay, let's kind of fast forward and back up at the same time. Fast forward to, to, to this weekend. And, you know, there are protests in our country and elsewhere around the world about um, the International Court of Justice's ruling on Friday, but also we've been seeing um, protests and um, for the last three plus months since um, the October 7th attacks. So broadly speaking, Richard, what rights do people in Canada have to protest? And what are the limits? Yeah, well, the Charter of Rights protects both freedom of expression and uh, the freedom to engage in, in uh, peaceful protest, peaceful assembly. Now, of course, any kind of protest, and so the protection of protest and will involve some element of disruption of ordinary uses, ordinary operation of different properties. An individual has a right to go on to uh, state-owned properties, public properties that are ordinarily open to the public uh, to express themselves. They can do that individually. They can do that collectively. And as I say, uh, protest will almost invariably involve some element of disruption. And that's uh, that's just a, an accepted cost of this particular right. But there are limits to that, too. There is always an issue of how much disruption is too much over how long or the degree of disruption. And that can be a difficult 
judgment to make. Clearly, in the case of the convoy protest, there was a determination that this went on too long, this involved too much harassing behavior, uh, this was far too disruptive to the lives of people residing in Ottawa. Now, there are, of course, other limits than just how long and exactly where a protest can occur. There are the limits uh, on speech that are included within the criminal code, the prohibition on hate speech, the prohibition on threats, um, threats of bodily harm, restrictions of that kind. Okay. Um, I know it's dangerous to compare um, protests and, and causes. Um, and so, but with that in mind, um, there's a convoy ruling that happened uh, by the federal court in Canada. At the same time, we've seen these ongoing protests um, related to the Israel-Hamas war. And again, this weekend, following the ICG ruling that came out on Friday, they are obviously very different protests. But is there a through line between these moments? Um, I think they are sufficiently different that it really is difficult to compare. Of course, we're living in a world in which protest you know, continues and seems to be increasing in a variety of ways. So there's that connection. But other than that, I think the convoy protest, because it involved trucks and structures that were fixed in place for an extended period, and because I suppose it was unclear how long the protesters intended to remain in Ottawa. So I think it's different from, say, the recent uh, pro-Palestinian protests that didn't, don't involve fixed structures, seem to have a clear start and finish, even though they may be recurring, and don't seem to have disrupted ordinary use of public spaces, at least in any significant way or for any extended period of time. So I think they're quite different in character, and the response uh, to each needs to be different as a result. Yeah, the exception maybe in the more recent protests is on an overpass in in, in Toronto um, in a predominantly Jewish neighbourhood, which the police have, have said people can no longer protest there because because of uh, you know the overpass being blocked and also because of the um, discomfort and or threats that it poses to many neighbors. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I think that's a little bit troubling, the police response to that protest. Um, the fact that individuals in the neighborhood may report they feel unsafe is not in itself uh, a basis or justification for shutting down a protest. If the speech that is happening at this protest is lawful speech, does not involve threats, does not involve uh, the expression of hateful views, the fact that some may feel deeply uncomfortable with the message really is not an adequate ground to restrict um, a protest. Now, of course, uh, a protest like that can interfere with traffic and so forth, and the police make some judgment around, you know, what extent, what degree of interference is tolerable. Um, but there are other responses than simply shutting down the protest. There are, um, um, you know, the authorities can respond by just ensuring that traffic is able to, to move along uh, the overpass. It doesn't require that the entire uh, protest uh, be shut down. I also want to ask you about the use of symbols. Um, and again, I'm, I'm using an example from the convoy protests and in a more recent example. There was at least one Nazi flag seen at the convoy protest back in uh, the winter of 2022. And at a pro-Palestinian rally in Toronto not long ago, um, there was a hate-related charge linked to a man allegedly for carrying what police called a quote-unquote terrorist flag at a rally. Under our criminal code, can symbols and flags be considered hate speech? Uh, yes, I think they can. I think a Nazi flag has a pretty uh, well-understood message behind it. 
and I think can certainly be understood as uh, promoting hatred contrary to the criminal code. Criminal code prohibits the willful promotion of hatred against the members of you know, particular groups defined on different grounds. And um, the speech has to be extreme in character, but I don't think there's any question that um, signifying your support through a flag of the Nazi anti-Semitic ideology uh, is, would count as as uh, speech is uh, sufficiently extreme and as hate speech. I should step back and say, first, because there is one individual carrying a Nazi flag within a much larger demonstration should not be understood as tainting the entire demonstration or justifying its shutdown. Uh, mm. If the demonstration's ideology overall is not you know, pro-Nazi or anti-Semitic, then there really isn't um, a basis for, for, I guess, blaming the whole for the actions of a part. The individual could be charged, but I don't think it justifies shutting down the entire protest. Now, uh, with that said, there's the other instance of uh, somebody carrying a flag, which I understand was a flag uh, from the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, who has been charged uh, for carrying that flag by the police, but not charged under the standard hate speech provision, um, another provision that's not used very often, and that is when somebody um, uh, expresses views, communicates statement in a public in a public place that incites hatred against an identifiable group on particular groups, where that incitement is likely to lead to a breach of the peace. Now, the challenge, it seems to me, in that particular case is, uh, as far as I know, there was no breach of the peace that occurred. And it's hard to know how the police would establish whether a breach of the peace is likely to occur if one, in fact, did not occur, especially sure. when we're talking about a single individual in a much larger demonstration carrying uh, a particular flag. An individual has no particular leadership role in that protest. And the other issue, and this is, I say this a little more tentatively, is that this is a hate speech provision. And so the fact that the the group, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, may be designated as a terrorist group does not in itself make it a hate group. Hmm. And that will be, a, again, for if it gets so far, for a court to decide um, to make those determinations. You know, I'm about to talk to someone, I'm um, to talk about protests sort of largely and, and the culture of them and sort of the last, you know, decade plus the all kinds of protests we've seen all over the year, the the, the years, uh, Richard. But we are seeing um, sort of debate about it. And I, and I say sort of like layperson debate, like I have a right to go out on the street and protest for this, a freedom of speech issue. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of debates going on and there's a lots of tension that is accompanying these debates, how protests should take place, how they should be policed, who should police them, is there hypocrisy in the way things are, are being accounted for. And I, 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 I say all that to you to ask you this, this, this question, what does this moment in protest culture say to you as someone who studies the legalities of them about where we are at in our country? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's certainly been widely observed that um, public conversation, public debate is increasingly polarized. In this particular case, the Israel-Palestine question, it seems tragic that each side is unable to recognize or acknowledge the pain experienced by the other. And that seems 
tragic. Uh, what I would say about protest is that a commitment to free speech and the right to protest means protecting speech that we might not agree with um, and we might consider to be wrong, might, maybe even offensive. But a commitment to free speech, a commitment to the right to protest means we have to be willing to tolerate speech of that kind. And it does seem increasingly that large elements of the population are not prepared to tolerate such speech or immediately understand it to be hateful or, uh, or appropriately the subject of uh, legal prohibition. And that's really worrying. And uh, yeah. Richard, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it and appreciate you walking us through this to help us all um, understand it a bit better. Well, thanks for the invitation. That was Richard Moon, a law professor at the University of Windsor, explaining the legal landscape of protests here in our country. Well, one of the bigger questions that emerges from almost all large-scale protests is how effective they are in creating meaningful change. And that question lies at the heart of a new book by journalist Vincent Bevins. It's called If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. The book explores protests worldwide between 2010 and 2020, a decade that saw more people participate in protests than at any other point in history. There were enormous demonstrations all over the Middle East and North Africa during the so-called Arab Spring. There's also the Occupy movement and rebellions in Turkey, Brazil and Hong Kong. That's just to name a few. Vincent Bevins, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. So there's been a surge in protests in Canada and around the world, in your country, almost in every country around the world, since the start of the Israel-Hamas war in uh, October of 2023. And I guess I just want to start by asking you, do protests like the ones we've been seeing over the conflict work? Um, they can do many things. Um, I think that traditionally, um, historically, what protests do is fundamentally always communicative. So they get a message out to given leaders. So I remember protesting the war in Iraq back in 2003. And one common pattern we saw throughout history is a message getting out um, and then leaders choosing that they heard it loud and clear and they don't care. They're, they're, they don't agree with the message. They don't, they don't, they, they're choosing to ignore it. And so far that has been the case of the major decision makers that matter the most, I think, to the lives of people in and around Gaza, which is Netanyahu and Joe Biden. So protests do a lot of things. They primarily, I think, send a message. They also help people come together to um, begin organizing work. Um, but in this particular case, I think so far, um, we're seeing the familiar cycle of a protest whose message is received and politely ignored. Okay, so let's just follow that through. Once that message is sort of sent, uh, whether it's received or not, what needs to ha happen kind of next? Like what it needs to happen for those in power to be motivated to respond? Well, often what needs to happen is things that they truly care about need to be threatened or dislodged, right? So in the case of the decade that I look at in my book, what often happened was that protests became so large, got so many people onto the streets that they actually became something else, something bigger than protests. They either forced governments out of power or so fundamentally destabilized um, governments that the people in power were willing to give up on things. And, and you know, whether or not we're sympathetic to this or that leader around the world, it is true that people running states have a lot of things on their mind. There's a lot of things that they have to care about. So 
Um, but there are things that they cannot ignore. Uh, often, uh, the slowing of the economy is a, is a, is a situation that um, presidents and prime ministers can't ignore. If actually, like, the government is, is ground to a halt, if the city, uh, of the, the capital city of a given nation is ground to a halt, that is something that is impossible to ignore. Um, but really, in order to force the kind of change that is envisioned without actually overthrowing the government, you have to change things that matter to the people in power. You have to make it make sense for them to give in to you. Uh, you have to make it easier for them to give in to your demand than to continue on their current path. And, and this is something that, you know, in really well-functioning democracies, uh, getting a message out that a whole lot of people disagree with a certain action can be part of the political calculus um, confronted by given leaders, but this is not usually the entire picture. You know, one person with a picket sign with something they stand are standing up for. I know the message, right? Like it's one person, I can see it on the side, I can talk to you, you can tell me what, what the message is. As more and more people sort of gather, and they might come for different reasons, there may be multiple messages, there might, might be right. multiple reasons why people are there. What are the risks or the, or the dangers to the message that's trying to be sent if a movement becomes too, too massive, too big, uh, different groups are attracted to it because of its size? Well, this is the strange paradox, the unexpected victory and subsequent challenge that is really at the center of the the decade that I look at. Um, because for various reasons, um, in many countries around the world in the 2010s, far more people came out to a given protest than anybody had expected. So many people came out that, as I said, it stopped really being a protest. It really became, uh, it, it had the it had the potential to be something else. But because of the speed with which, as a result of social media, as a result of often responses to police violence, um, shock at the way that this or that government is um, behaving, so many people came so quickly that they often didn't know each other or necessarily even agree on what should be the outcome of the protest. So in many cases, um, in the decade that I look at at least, these tremendous opportunities are generated because a dictator is fleeing the country or a, a democratically elected leader really wants to give in, really wants to give the people something, but they don't even know what the people are asking for because they're asking for so many contradictory things. Or the leaders fled the country, but this protest of people with different ideas of the future, different ideas as to who should be in power, cannot really take the seat of power that is left vacant. And, and often I found um, in the 2010s at least, somebody did jump on the throne that shocked and horrified the original organizers because they often um, considered that person to be even worse than the person that, that ran away. Mm, give me an example. Uh, Egypt. Um, uh, Mubarak. So Mubarak left in, in 2011 as an unexpectedly large protest forced the military to withdraw support for him. So this was a dictator that had been in power for decades with U.S. support um, that had cracked down on uh, civil society and on workers in Egypt. By 2013, uh, you know, this doesn't happen all at once. By 2013, you get Sisi, who's still in power now and still one of the major players on the southern border of Israel and Palestine. And many of the original people that put together the uprisings of January 2011 would consider him a worse leader than the one that they removed. The other thing about, you know, numbers. And I'm guilty of this as as a journalist. You know, I used to be a reporter and I'd say this many people came out as as, as if a number in itself right. means something, right? And we do that right. all the time. Hundreds of thousands turned out on the streets of London or right. however we do that. What's the danger in focusing too much numbers? Well, I think that 
we, I mean, I'm speaking personally for, for myself, but I think that uh, a lot of journalists ended up making this mistake um, in the 2010s is uh, focusing on the spectacle. Because, you know, we know that there is nothing that is more powerful as an image than thousands or millions of people coming together in the streets. And often we concentrated on just that image rather than what they were asking for, what would happen if they would win, who exactly they were opposing, and what the mechanisms there were for transforming the society from one thing to another. So numbers make that image more powerful, and often they make it harder for a government to ignore a given uh, uprising. But again, tragically, what we saw in the 2010s is that some uh, presidents, dictators, prime ministers, realized that they could either just ignore the numbers of the people in the streets, or they could just crack down. They could, mm. they could in front of the whole world, just kill all the protesters. And as long as they had the security forces on their side, the people with the guns are going to win in the battle against the people that don't have guns that are in the square. So numbers can tell, can make uh, the protest louder, can make its message ver reverberate further, but it doesn't necessarily change, as I say, that political calculus that every leader makes, what's going to be in my best interest, what's going to allow me to, to remain uh, in, in, in control of this country, what's going to help the economy grow, what's going to keep um, my supporters on my side. And so numbers can be really, really intoxicating, including for the participants. And I, you know, I probably was guilty of feeling the, this intoxication myself in certain uprisings that I covered up close. But um, again, it's not the whole thing. You really need to focus on what the final outcome is going to be. Mm. Your book is focused, um, as, as we've been talking about in the 2010s, the Arab Spring, of course, took place and through much of that decade. Do you see a relationship between the Arab Spring and the protests taking place today that we've seen over the past three months since since October the 7th, three plus months now? Yeah, absolutely. The most famous and inspiring and widely reproduced image of what was called the Arab Spring was Tahrir Square in central Cairo. And the people that put together the protests that became the occupation of Tahrir Square came together through a decade of organizing over support for Palestine. Mm. The people that put to, that made the biggest and most important episode of the uh, the Arab Spring happened. They didn't wake up one morning and all just uh, 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 flood into the streets. They came together organizing primarily around support for Palestine and then second in opposition to the war in Iraq, as I had in, in California back in 2003. Um, but what was very shocking to them is that in the moments of that famous and very widespread reproduction of the images of Tahrir Square, a lot of people like me uh, in the global media, portrayed the uprising as if it was something that was pro-American, pro-Western, whereas really they thought, well, democracy here is going to mean that we're going to challenge governments in the region that are allied with the United States, most importantly, Saudi Arabia and Israel. And so not only was that dynamic at the beginning of what became the most important, I think, episode of the Arab Spring, that contradiction is still fundamental to what's going on right now in the region. Um, the fun, a, a very fundamental contradiction in the Arab world, in all of the countries that border uh, Israel, is that a vast majority of the local population, a vast majority of the people in countries like Egypt and Jordan and so on, are pro-Palestine and are deeply, deeply critical of the way that Israel has been conducting itself recently. But there is a set of leaders that in order to maintain their position, in order to sort of hold on to power, in order to remain uh, 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 stable in in stable relationship with the the really powerful country, countries in the global system 
have to be kind of okay with what's happening. And that is that is a real deep contradiction that has been driving some of the more explosive protests um, in the region. And that I think is still at the at the heart of the problem. So whether we look at these recent protests or we look at, you know, ones in the decade that, that your book focuses on, um, how important is it for the leaders? And, and I know sometimes that leadership can be diverse or not singular for them to have an end game, right? When they take on sort of whatever the the, the cause is in, in the case of Egypt in 2011, for example, right. how important is the end game? At least in the uprisings that we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, things could go differently in the future, but at least in the, in the, in the cases that I look at, um, the interviewees that admitted to me, many of them did, oh, we never expected to win and we had no plan whatsoever as to what to do after we won, told that to me in a spirit of self-criticism and, 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 um, and a wish that things had been different. They themselves had said, we wish that we had set, had more of an idea as to what our plans B, C, and D would be in the case of unexpected opportunities and victories. So I think in even the most uh, well-planned revolutions in human history, things change. You have to change your, 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 your plan on the fly. Leaders are going to be cycled in and out. Things are going to Things are going to demand pivots, um, but I think it does help to have an idea of the possible ways that things could end in your favor. Um, and importantly, I think it's what's really fundamental is to have the kind of flexible but firm organizations that can respond to changing circumstances in a way which is both democratic but and agile. And that's really hard to pull off. You want everybody to be able to be behind a shift in strategy, but you also want to be able to make that shift in strategy quickly because often what happened in the decade that I look at is that circumstances changes very quickly and this very diffuse, loose group of individuals with perhaps no leaders or perhaps a lot of different people trying to be leaders had a very hard time pivoting in a collective way. And mm. this this allowed for their enemies to, you know, this is a strategy that's been used for thousands of years, divide and conquer. If, if, if there's no unity, it's very easy for your enemies to defeat you. One other thing that um, protest movements often do is look look to other ones, right? Where they're being yes. successful, uh, where they're failing, and kind of taking lessons learned, but also adopting perhaps some strategies. Right. What what is Are there drawbacks when one mass movement adopts tactics or strategies of a mass movement in another place, in another cause? Yeah, I think just technology and social media in general, but also media uh, uh, writ large, made two things possible in recent history that were positive and then a little bit more complicated. On the one hand, it was true that, let's go back to that, that those truly inspiring images from Chakra Square, and they're still really inspiring, even if you know how things turned out. That allowed people around the whole entire world to be inspired by what was happening in Egypt immediately. And there was the immediate transfer of love and solidarity and encouragement of this, you know, global collective spirit of we want to make things better. We're all we're all in this together. And I think that's entirely positive. And that was made possible by technology. <laughs> but you also saw a sort of a slippage where you got movements in very different parts of the world with very different political and economic and national circumstances kind of copying and pasting something that seemed to work elsewhere. Um, and strangely, bizarrely, as the decade wore on, you saw this copy and paste process happen, not only from one system to another where things were very, very different, 
but the copying and pasting continued to happen after the original case proved to be a failure. Mm. Um, so I think that a lot of us got so wrapped up in the power of the image, um, which, as I said, has, has so many positive, po offers so many positive possibilities that there was a slippage into the reproduction of tactics where, you know, in Brazil, where I was in 2013, things were very different than in Egypt in 2011. In Egypt in 2011, there was a dictator. In Brazil in 2013, there was a democratically elected and popular president. Of course, people had a lot of reasons to be upset with the administration of Dilma Rousseff. But like, people started to act as if it was the Arab Spring in Brazil. Some Someone even said that it was the Brazilian Spring. Whereas this kind of, of like, just, you know, control C, you know, control Z, control V version of politics caused a, a short circuit, as uh, one prominent politician in Brazil put it. Like, there was this tactic that was developed to try to overthrow a dictator, but actually we were trying to talk to the streets and it was this very strange um, set of explosive contradictions that no one really knew what to do with. Do, what to do with. And, and uh, in Brazil, at least, we all sort of lived through the strange consequences of that uh, years afterwards. In writing your book, you interviewed more than um, 200 people and among them, uh, many organizers of protests. And the question you asked them was, if you could speak to a teen somewhere around the world right now, a teenager, who might be fighting to change history in a political struggle, what would you tell them? So right. Vincent Bevins, what would you tell that teen? Well, the best that I can do as a journalist is to summarize the responses of these, as you say, more than 200 people that spent years fighting for a better future and then a decade reflecting on what it meant. So what I what I tried to do to the best of my ability is use let their wisdom shine through. One one way to summarize those answers is that a lot of people told me we wish that we had been more organized before the explosion came. Mm. Um, we wish that we had been building in the off season, you know, to use a sports metaphor metaphor. Um, we because when the explosion came that we did not expect um, it was the people that were already well organized um, that did the best. And, you know, and depending on which country we're talking about, depending on which type of situation these these interviewees might have been in, there was a lot of different types of organizations that they might have been speaking about, political parties, social movements, unions, civil society groups, parliamentary parties, revolutionary parties, and so on. Um, but this was, that's the best way that I can summarize what these, you know, 200 brave and eloquent people told to me is that they, that you you never know when a crisis or an opportunity is going to come and the the more you are locked arm in arm with other human beings prepared to fight together truly in a collective way for a better world the best you're going to do no matter what comes some people would say you know what's the point i here i am living in canada I'm going to go protest in downtown Toronto for an issue maybe that is half a world away, and right. I can't really make a difference. So make the case. How can a large demonstration in a Canadian city make a difference in a conflict that is happening overseas? So I suppose that a conclusion that my book gestures towards is not that uh, a protest is uh, ineffective, is that, but rather that a protest is most effective when deployed uh, in concert with other elements of, that are part of a larger strategy. So a protest does very important things. It brings people together. It sends a message. It demonstrates that a certain number of people feel a certain way. But it also provides opportunities for those people to get together and act in other collective ways, which often really <laughs> matter more to elected officials or to officials that are not elected. So I would say that 
I mean, I've been going to to protests uh, in support of a more humanitarian outcome for the people living in and around Gaza. But it's the issue is not whether or not this on its own is going to fix everything. Is It's whether or not it can contribute to a larger set of actions which matter in the long term. And bringing people together and sending a message, I think, can be a really important part of, of, of the, the larger strategic action that has always been and will always be a complicated and, and difficult process in the world of geopolitics. It's an important moment in history that we're living through right now. Um, and I thank you so much because um, the context you offer helps us understand what we're seeing on our streets a little bit more. Thank you. Thank you so much. Vincent Bevins is a journalist and the author of the book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. And that brings us to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help from audio technicians Juliana Romanic, Sam McNulty, as well as studio director Susan McReynolds. Our senior producers, Howard Goldenthal, our executive producer is Brian Colton. You can share your thoughts with us by sending an email to sunday at cbc.ca. Next Sunday, David Common will be here at the Sunday Magazine Mike, and he'll be in conversation with journalist and podcaster John Ronson. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you so very much for lending us your ear. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.